This is episode 31 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Thursday, April 21st, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Ryan Bemrose. Today, we have a rare Thursday Angry Tech News, though I suppose if I'm being honest, most of you are listening to this on Friday. The big story of this week is the European Digital Markets Act law that I teased last week. It took several days to compile, not least because there's a lot of content to it, but also because it's pretty political. The age of neutral reporting, such as it ever existed, is gone, especially about political topics, and that means that every source of information that I use puts their own bias and spin on it that I have to sift through and unspin so that I can find out which parts are true and which are the fever dream of some opinionated journalist. Then I have to take that truth, put my own spin on it, and deliver to you. Like I said, a long process. I know there are those out there who don't like when I mix politics and tech, even when they have the potential to impact tech as much as this one does. That's all right. If you don't listen to that story, I won't be offended. Just use the chapter skip button in your podcasting 2.0 compliant podcast app to skip over it. You are using a podcast 2.0 compliant app, aren't you? From the Department of the Obvious Department. This story comes via prolific ATN troll Abel Kirby, who sent in a NextWeb article that used 1,100 words to explain that when you send audio to a teleconferencing app, The company behind that app now has your audio. The issue at hand is the ubiquitous mute button, which is found in every app from Zoom to Teams to Discord, and which is the source of an untold number of hilarious can-you-hear-me moments. Board researchers at University of Wisconsin-Madison tested many popular apps and determined that they continued to send audio data across the network even when the mute button was engaged. I probably would have dismissed this story as blindingly obvious, but thanks to Mr. Kirby, I realized that while it's obvious to angry tech news listeners due to your keen and skeptical minds, most users still aren't appropriately suspicious of technology and still need to hear this. The mute button in your app does exactly what it says. It causes the app to stop delivering your voice to the other people in the conversation. It doesn't prevent every sound in the room from being delivered to the Silicon Valley data center behind the app to be stored, cataloged, scanned, analyzed, and fed into a giant AI that churns and bubbles and sends direct feed outputs to the company, their advertising network, and the FBI. All of this is perfectly legal, of course. It says so in the 1,200-page terms of service that you all read and agreed to. You did read it, didn't you? The researchers, according to the UW press release, specifically concluded that Every single teleconferencing app that they tested, when muted via the app, continued to access and gather audio data from the microphone. One app in particular, they said, continues to collect and send data to the server at the same rate, regardless of mute state. The press release didn't say which app it was, presumably to avoid spoiling the surprise for when the researchers plan to present their full findings in July. But which app doesn't really matter, does it? They all can. They're all one update away from sending everything to the server. The mute button in the app is nothing more than a form control, a clicky button that tells the app about your intention to mute. 
It does nothing at all to actually stop audio from streaming. You have to trust that the app developer does the honorable thing and stops listening when you ask them to. And unlike with a video camera, which can be covered by a post-it note, most microphones offer no real way to physically stop it from being able to record you. If you do truly want to mute yourself, you'll need a physical mute button outside the computer. The best defense is if you have a microphone or headset that has a button on the side, which makes it send silence to the OS. If you're one of the wealthy podcasters in the audience, most likely some piece of that expensive professional audio gear that you keep buying will have a hardware mute in the chain. If it doesn't, you got ripped off. If you're me, you could accidentally kick the power cord out of the channel strip during a live stream. We don't talk about that, though. My co-host still thinks that I stepped out to use the bathroom. And if you don't have a hardware mute at all and you don't have a mic you can just unplug, the next best thing is to use the mute button buried in your operating system settings recording devices control panel. When that's set, the app can't get your audio no matter how often it pulls the mic because the operating system isn't sending it. Just be careful, the control panel has an API that allows programs to go into settings and turn the mute back off. I wouldn't expect a legitimate teleconferencing app to do something so invasive, but I would expect malware to do just that. And the line between the two is a lot blurrier than you might think. From the Too Much Fungibility Department. This next story has already made the rounds amongst most of the tech news and podcasts out there, so I'll try to be brief. But it was filled with just too much delicious schadenfreude to pass over. In December 2020, when the new fad called non-fungible tokens was hitting its stride, one NFT sale stood out ahead of the rest for its sheer ludicrousness. Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter, took a screenshot of the first ever post to the platform, turned the screenshot into an NFT, and put it up for auction. If you recall, the process for creating an NFT of an image involves hosting the image on the web somewhere and then writing the URL of that image into the Ethereum blockchain. Bidding on Dorsey's NFT went up and up until March 2021 when the fad was entering fever pitch, the NFT was sold to a crypto entrepreneur named Sina Estavi. The winning bid? $2.9 million equivalent. For a URL. Can you say buying the hype? That was then. Now, more than a year later, as NFTs continue to be traded in online marketplaces, much to my surprise, Estavi decided that it was time to cash in on his investment. He put the Dorsey Tweet NFT up on OpenSea with an opening bid of $48 million and waited for the bids to come rolling in. And waited. And waited. After 48 hours, the top bid was $280. After a week, the bids had nearly crossed the $10,000 mark. A luxurious sum for a digital blockchain representation of a URL string, but a far cry from being able to recoup the initial nearly $3 million investment. Estavi bought into the hype of these new tokens and is now stuck owning something that he paid too much for. I could say this surprises me, but every one of you would know that I'm lying if I did so. NFTs are the digital offspring of a pyramid scheme and a game of musical chairs. When the idea of an NFT marketplace was originally sold to people, it was under the assumption that the value of one of these tokens could only go up and that making money on NFTs was a simple matter of buy, hold, and then sell at a higher value. But nothing in the market goes up in price indefinitely without bounds, with the possible exception of Biden's gas prices. As with any speculative asset, Hype can only drive the price up so high before it comes crashing back down to reality. Riding the hype is a game of risk, 
The real trick is to make sure you get out before the music stops and hope that after everyone scrambles to sit down, you're not the one left without a chair. From the Internet of Broken Things Department, customers of IoT startup Insteon, who specialized primarily in smart home automation, were in for a rude surprise last week as many of their smart home devices mysteriously stopped working, the cloud servers backing the service having gone offline. The company sold Wi-Fi-enabled light switches, power outlets, thermostats, security sensors, and an internet-connected hub to bring it all together and make every device in your home accessible to hackers. After the servers went down, the smart light switches and wall outlets were suddenly no smarter than the dumb variety of them, well, the hub and most of the remote gear became useful only as doorstops and paperweights. What devices did continue to work stopped soon when power cycled or factory reset. About the same time, Insteon's tech support forum was erased and left in read-only mode, and the company's about and contact pages were deleted as well. Interestingly, a week later, Insteon's system status page still showed all services online, although likely because there was nobody left in the building to update it. And finally, Rob Lulinus, the man who up until last week was listed as Insteon's CEO, but whose LinkedIn profile this week mysteriously has no mention whatsoever of the company, said when contacted via LinkedIn message that he had no information to share and was, quote, no longer involved with the company. All of this led some of the more questioning of Insteon's 1.3 million customers to wonder if perhaps there might have been a conspiracy going on and they weren't going to get the prompt tech support for their malfunctioning devices. The Insteon.com website now contains a four-paragraph note at the top. The note tells a sad sob story of how the company ran into money troubles and ended up having all of its assets transferred to a liquidation company. I guess that's closure of a sort but it doesn't exactly excuse the massive fuck-up in suddenly shutting everything down without telling any customers. Now, I know I probably don't need to say this, especially to long-time listeners of this podcast, but I'm me, so I'm going to say it anyway. This is the risk you take when you connect essential things to the cloud. Everything that you have that has to be online, everything that requires you to sign in to access, every streaming service, every DRM piece of media, every digital library of books, music, movies, or games that you dump thousands of dollars into building can all disappear, fail, or break in an instant for any number of reasons outside of your control. Some of the reasons are malicious, like getting banned for posting the wrong meme or liking the wrong former president's posts on a completely unrelated social media site. Other reasons might be benign or accidental, like, oh, say, a company going out of business. In both cases, though, your digital library is no less deleted, your streaming no less disabled, your smart light switches no less dumb. And yes, I get it. Convenience. Y'all are some lazy some bitches sometimes, and no two-bit sarcastic podcaster can compete with the ability for you to turn your bedroom light on and off without having to stand up and walk a few feet across the room. We live in a convenience society. Some things, like running water, electricity, or the ability to drive down the street and get fresh food without having to grow it yourself, are valuable and necess necessary for our current society to function. But technology has also brought us a lot of convenience that we don't strictly need. Worse, some of those unnecessary conveniences come with a very hefty price tag in terms of privacy, security, or mental health that most people never even consider. 
Strictly speaking, your life does not become unlivable if you can't control devices in your home from your smartphone or a web app. My house has manual door locks that I operate with a small specially shaped bit of metal, manual light switches that I have to stand in the room to operate, manual toilets that I have to walk all the way to the bathroom to use, and yet somehow my quality of life is not unlivable. Maybe once in a while we should all take stock of the convenience in our lives and find out which ones we really need and which ones we don't. Or maybe it's better that people don't do that. After all, if they did, I wouldn't have this deep well of content to podcast about. From the Gatekeeping the Gatekeepers department. Last week, I teased an analysis of Europe's latest attempt at reigning in Silicon Valley. Well, buckle up, because there's a lot here. Last month, the European Commission passed the Digital Markets Act, a sweeping bit of legislation that aims to right the wrongs visited upon us by tech megacorporations, all in one bill. From here, the bill forwards on to the European Parliament and the European Council, where it is expected to be considered in June of this year and in all likelihood to be adopted in October and put into effect sometime in 2023. Let me say up front, all of this is subject to change. All we really have to go on right now is the December 2020 draft. There's still quite a few details to be ironed out and wheeling and dealing to be done in the council and parliament. And that is before it goes through the inevitable parade of lawsuits by butthurt corporations. Okay, so what does the DMA do? The act seeks to regulate and limit a class of corporations they call gatekeepers. A gatekeeper is a company with a market cap of at least 75 billion euro and that at least and at least 45 million monthly users in the EU who provides core platform services to the EU public. Core platform services in this bill includes search, app stores, social networks, media platforms, messengers, ad networks, operating systems, and cloud. Basically, anyone that holds power in between European businesses and their European customers online. The power to deplatform or cancel, the power to extract a middleman's cut from transactions, and the power to censor user speech. No official list of gatekeepers will be published until the bill goes into effect. But if you read between the lines, the list of companies in the world that qualify is exactly Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook. Notice that they are all American. Some of the specific hammers about to be brought down on gatekeepers. Interoperability for messengers, specifically iMessage and WhatsApp. The idea is to eliminate lock-in by forcing messenger apps to be able to deliver messages to another app's messaging network. Suffice it to say, Apple and Facebook are very much against this one, not just because of the technical hurdles in doing something like this are immense, but also because it would eliminate the network effect that made these networks so big initially. Imagine if you weren't stuck downloading that one app just because all your friends were on it. Next, App Store Sideloading. Apple has always held the assumption that just because you bought their hardware, they now own you and get to control all access to what you can see or use online and what types of contracts with other businesses are allowed to enter with you. You can see this, for example, in their defense of the 30% Apple tax. Apple often claims they deserve 30% of your app's revenue forever because Apple brought the customer to the app store, which doesn't even make sense before you consider that the customer was coerced. The DMA seeks to enable third-party app stores by preventing a gatekeeper from blocking them technically or contractually. No more price restrictions in online stores. 
the EU seeks to prevent gatekeepers from enforcing any contract terms that limit what a vendor can charge elsewhere. This one is aimed mainly at Amazon, who for years had requirements that a vendor who listed a product on Amazon could not offer that product for a lower price anywhere else. It also impacts Apple's long-standing restrictions on app developers who would get kicked out of the App Store if they raised prices to offset Apple's 30% markup. This one is timely as Apple is currently fighting off a formal EU antitrust complaint lodged by Spotify regarding Apple's long-standing policy of canceling your app if you so much as mention a URL in the app where a user could get a non-Apple tax deal. And also to Google, who are coincidentally facing significant fines for doing exactly the same thing in Korea in violation of a new 2021 law which requires app stores to allow alternate payment methods. Data sharing for targeted advertising. Gatekeepers, quote, may not use any non-public data they have against competitors, and they may not combine data from one division of a company with other divisions for the purpose of targeting ads unless they have explicit consent. For example, under this rule, Instagram could not combine data with WhatsApp for the purpose of building a marketing portfolio on you. Same with, say, Gmail and search. So yeah, remember back in about 2004, when the new advertising craze was targeting ads, the pitch was always, you'll only see ads for products you're interested in. Yeah, that never worked. It didn't really make ads more convenient or enjoyable, but it did make them a whole lot more creepy. And the DMA wants to make targeted ads as a whole a lot more difficult to do. To be honest, I don't see how this data sharing provision will work or if it can even be enforced. For one thing, what's a division of a company? During my time as a corporate cog, the org chart was more or less in a permanent state of flux, and without extremely invasive regular reporting of sensitive information to an unaccountable government bureaucracy, I don't see how they can even detect if this data sharing is going on, let alone prove it. But hey, it's a thought that counts, am I right? The DMA also enforces data portability. Under these rules, any company that collects user data must provide end-user tools to exfiltrate and delete any personal user data. This is similar to the GDPR, but it goes a lot further. Another provision, requiring free browser choice. Here's looking at you, Microsoft, who is, in fact, bringing back the good old Internet Explorer days in Windows 11 by making Edge non-uninstallable and forcing certain URLs to only open in Edge with no way to redirect to another browser. If Europeans are lucky, they get to see a return of the infamous browser choice dialogue. There's also a provision against self-preferencing services. For example, Google search recommending Gmail above all other providers or Amazon delisting third-party products that compete with their basic line. Another one, preloaded apps must be uninstallable, Samsung. And in an obvious response to the high-profile Google and Facebook price-fixing scandals of the last couple of years, the algorithm used to set ad prices must be made available to advertisers and competitors. All of these provisions seek to limit anti-competitive behaviors. An interesting difference in antitrust law between the U.S. and Europe is that Europe's antitrust laws seek at all times to enforce that there must be competition, and they focus mainly on the effect of a company's actions on its competitors. It is assumed that as long as, that as, long as there's competition, consumers are helped somehow. The U.S. antitrust system instead looks for consumer harm and uses competition only as a tool to remedy that harm. If nobody is hurt by a monopoly, then the EU will still try to break it up, but the U.S. won't care. 
Silicon Valley has for decades enjoyed monopolies on nearly everything they do, and they've become quite good at maintaining them legally, thanks to overbroad interpretations of copyright and IP law, to restrictive technical measures like DRM, and to the anti-circumvention clause from the Clinton-era Digital Millennium Copyright Act. For the last 20 years, these megacorporations have leveraged these monopolies into the unassailable behemoths that they are today. They argue that the end users are happy and U.S. regulators sat back and just took a no harm, no foul approach, letting them do what they want. But whether users are happy or not, there's very little competition. And that is what EU regulators are trying to change. To be clear, the Digital Markets Act still leaves a lot of things, well, unclear. It is a huge, huge sweeping piece of legislation, which is certain to have a ton of perverse incentives and unintended consequences. Plus, there's going to be a ton of disruption as engineers scramble to figure out how to revise the design and features of a lot of platform stuff. Many have already started raising red flags about security. Tim Cook, for example, said in an interview that sideloading would, quote, destroy the security of iPhone and allow users to be, quote, tricked and coerced into downloading apps from third party app stores by bad actors using copycat apps and other methods. I don't know that I necessarily follow his chicken little analysis. The app store is no paragon of security. It has scam apps. It has malware. It has supply chain attacks. I see no design reason why the Apple app store is inherently any more secure than say Google play or F droid. I am more convinced by the technical arguments against messenger interoperability. Don't get me wrong. I think interoperability is a laudable goal, but you can't just staple on interoperability without incredible disruption. Whether implementers develop custom protocols between services or jump on an open standard like ActivityPub or IRC, there's huge opportunity for spam, harassment, and security bugs to develop. Tim Apple summed it up while standing atop iMessage's garden walls by saying, the world needs more secure messaging systems rather than interoperability. Personally, Tim, I think we need both. And finally, unlike existing antitrust rules that result in fines a company can shrug off as an accounting glitch, the proposed Digital Markets Act has teeth. For a first offense, a gatekeeper can be fined up to 10% of its worldwide revenue, 20% for repeat offenses. In the coming months, expect gatekeeper megacorporations to invest heavily in lawyers and lobbyists to shoot down or water down the DMA. They have to. If it goes into effect as is, they're either going to have to give up their monopolies or pull out of Europe. While I'm sure many Europeans would be fine with either way, I doubt the same can be said of the company's stockholders. While researching, I came across another similar-sounding EU law working its way through Brussels, the Digital Services Act, from the desk of Ursula von der Leyen, is designed to harmonize, meaning overwrite, any national laws restricting freedom of speech. The DSA has some useful clauses like requiring transparency for the rules and algorithms that determine when content is removed, but one prominent section makes, quote, disinformation illegal across the EU, meaning when this passes, you can be thrown in the gulag for saying something that doesn't fit the current popular narrative. A chilling idea, considering how many things labeled as disinformation and have got people banned from social media later turn out to be completely true. I guess this is another big difference between America and Europe. Oh, I know that whole freedom of speech thing has fallen out of vogue with the ruling class and the woker generations, but our constitution specifically prohibits the government from throwing people in jail for saying things someone doesn't agree with. 
I think Europe could maybe learn something from that. Big manual non-cloud thank yous to Sir Spud the Mighty, Brandon Kidwell, Rhett Vandenberg, Curtis Peterson, Steve Edwards, and Don Mills for producing this episode of the Angry Tech News podcast. There wouldn't be an Angry Tech News without your support. And to those producers who feel like they're being too entitled if they complain when ATN comes out late, I may regret saying this, but please feel free to pester me when I fall behind in my responsibilities. It's not being entitled to ask. It's holding me to my end of the value for value model. Sometimes the toughest part of this job is getting the motivation to sit down and trawl through the various tech news stories and then come up with something sufficiently sarcastic to say about it. When people ask me for what I haven't delivered, it helps provide that motivation, knowing that to do anything else is to let down all of the excellent people who've shown faith by listening to this show, recommending it to friends, and even donating. Plus, I get a little ego boost knowing that there are people out there eagerly jonesing for a little hit of what I got. Angry Tech News is provided on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we do not charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send whatever you think this episode was worth to you, whether it be $10, $50, or more. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I will be back next time with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com Stay angry Stay angry Stay angry